Off and running we are. December the 8th, this is actually December the 1st, I think, but uh, I missed last week for medical issues and I covered that in the pregame. I don't know if that makes Facebook or not, but it does make YouTube, doesn't it? So you, those of you who can, who can wait a week to be bored to death you can find me there. I don't have time today to cover it, but I'm feeling a lot better starting this at, with a heart rate of 82. Last week it was over 120 for hours. So here we are, December the 8th, 2019, lecture discussion number 86 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, and Ecclesiastes. And I got a couple of letters to start with today that I hope that you'll see actually feather into the lecture. First one is from uh, Dankajen. She used to write to me more. Now she's kind of given up on me, I think. Uh, but she would always sign it, Danka Jen. So I started to combine the two into her new name, Danka Jen. Ah, let's see what she says. Thinking of you, Pastor Mr. Coach. That spark plug of yours better stop acting up. I was talking with my sister about how we have to watch the family history of arrhythmia and valve issues and how sleeping on your left is recommended, but you said your doctor said sleeping on the right is preferred. Actually, the doctors deny this is even an issue. Uh, You will find both sides argue one to the other, but those of us with atrial fibrillation we see a causation and a correlation mathematically from being on your left side. If you don't have atrial fibrillation, obviously they want you on the left side. That throws the heart forward in the the thorax, makes it easier to take uh, uh, an image of it. Uh, But uh, the atrial fibrillation community, uh, and I have had the experience when I have slept on my left side, which is my preferred side my whole life. I would go into AFib. So I stopped doing that. That, that broke, I haven't been on my left side for four months. And I've made it four months without a, a AFib recurrence, even though last Sunday I was convinced that I was going to have recurrence. That's why we went to the ER. The emergency personnel said, come now before you go in. And so that's what we did. In any event, uh, that's the issue. So, Jennifer, your family, if you have atrial fibrillation, you're going to find certain triggers. Uh, A large percentage of uh, this community believes that sleeping on the left does, in fact, throw the heart forward, and that has an impact. Uh, So that's that. Then she goes on to say, by the way. See, that, that was a trap, wasn't it? Thinking about Jennifer, Jennifer, thinking about Jennifer, did it twice. Thinking about Genesis 1 and how God separated the light and the darkness and he saw that the light was good. Okay, is this a reference to Christ's obedience? Why wouldn't God have known it would be good? Am I getting too weird? As always, much love from a lovely rainy 60 degrees in Arizona. No one lives in Arizona, so... No one would want to. I can't. So hopefully 60 degrees, that could be anywhere. That could be Juno, for all we know. It's an excellent question, and um, it actually fits today. So that's what I'm trying to do. God did know it was good. Obviously, he knew it was good. And she's tying this back to where Christ says, why do you call me good? There's only one good. That's God. So when he's saying it's good, he is talking about himself. 
He's the only thing that is good. As he defines good. So he did know it was good. So what's his reasonings here for calling it good? Who, yeah, well, excellent. I think I heard you say, well, who's listening to him? It isn't humanity in Genesis 1. And it's good in contrast to what has, is, he divides it. He actually says, this is good, and this is what? Dark. And dark is evil. So there's this contrast. And he is he's saying it aloud. When God speaks aloud, then that isn't for himself ever. You always have to anticipate the audience. So clearly the angelic host needed to learn something. They needed to learn what was good and what was evil. And he's making the beginning of that case for them. He divides the good from the dark. So that's how we get this to fit into Joel today. I have another letter. It's from Lucas. Pastor Steve. Happy feast day of St. Nicholas. Hope you're feeling better. Better being a relative term. You notice I didn't type doing better. The loss of aspartame, aluminum poisoning, and caffeine in your diet will almost assuredly prevent this. I don't want to be long, especially because your mail was already piling up before this most recent hospital visit. I hope you harangue the medical professionals. I don't harangue them. I ask them questions, which, which makes them uncomfortable. It, haranguing implies, uh, uh, how do I put it, aggressiveness. I'm very mild to them. None would say that. <laughs> I wanted to run by you something I've been considering recently and hopefully give you a chuckle. The item uh, for your kind consideration has to do with the sop given to Judas Satan. Christ, God, gives Judas Satan a sop of bread, a sop being a dipped piece. John 13. I've heard a few things on the subject and read some of the commentary at my disposal, but as I began asking questions, yay, yay Lucas, I had a sharp pain in my head. <laughs> as a millennial, it took me a little while to realize that it was a thought. The bread of the sop should certainly connect to the testing of Christ. Do you see how he did that? What is the key? What is the beginning of the testing of Christ? Matthew 4, Luke 4, Mark 1. It's the bread. So he puts bread and bread together, appropriately so. The bread of the sop should certainly connect to the testing of Christ, but less obvious is the dipping of it. Might a picture of judgment be hidden there? If the turning of stones into bread includes a reference to the mineral organic Eden, could the sop picture the covering of the organic and mineral Eden with water? Did he break the bread as in other instances? Is this an encouragement to Judas Satan to attempt the destruction of the Jews and the Romans if you have alluded to in this series of lectures? If it is true, what does it reveal about Matthew 26, 23? Would Jesus God taunt the devil like this? No. I will hopefully explain what he's doing. Not all of it, because Lucas asks a lot of questions here with this sop, doesn't he? That's fantastic. Oh, now the reward, here goes on. Now the reward for putting up 
with rambling drivel from a novice. Years ago, you announced a new favorite bumper sticker. It had to be many years ago. I always used to say my favorite was, uh, whoever dies with the most toys is dead. I like that because it's theologically sound. And I haven't heard any updates on that, so I thought I'd send you a couple that I like from the snark category. So this is... uh, These are uh, bumper stickers from Lucas. Number one, don't believe everything you think. (laughs) That's kind of a Descartes little George Berkeley there. Forget world peace, focus on using your turn signal. (laughs) We have enough youth, how about a fountain of smart? (laughs) I doubt, therefore I might be. And finally, yes, this is my truck. No, I won't help you move. So, thank you for those. Lucas, I didn't have to think of any jokes this week, much to the delight of everybody. Okay, it's my diabolical plan to begin at Daniel 12 today. It's finally time for Daniel 12 in our Joel study. Now, some might object, saying that Daniel 12 is the last words of the book of Daniel. And in order to understand Daniel 12, it is required to be in command, obviously, of Daniel 1 through 11. And I mostly subscribe to that concept, that reasoning, reasoning mostly being a relative term. I wholeheartedly, if I had a whole heart, I would wholeheartedly... Agree that Daniel 12 is the conclusion of Daniel. It's the verdict, if you wish, of the book of Daniel. All of Daniel, therefore, leads to Daniel 12. If you want, it's the mis- it's, it exposes who did it in the mystery novel. I want to think of it that way. And that's exactly why I prefer to begin at the end of these books. You'll notice I did it with Ecclesiastes 12. Now I'm doing it with Daniel 12. My approach is exactly as similar to Ecclesiastes 12. Those are the final written words of Solomon. I have collected the final words of many men who were great scholars. Solomon, perhaps the wisest man post-flood to have ever lived. Not perhaps, I think unquestionably, perhaps would be Newton after him. These are both men. They have a lot in common. They, they, They loved their Bible. Obviously, Solomon had more access uh, to the thoughts of God. He was given specifically wisdom. How much did he get compared to us? So I want to know the final words. I have the final words of M.R. Dahan. I have the final words, if I could, I'm pretty confident of A.W. Pink. I try to find the last thoughts of these men and women, Ada Ruth Habershon, that have thought deeply about Scripture. So that's one of the reasons I go back to Daniel 12. First, and beginning with the ending ensures that those elements that cause the resultant are not unseen. Does that make sense? I hope it does. Note that not unseen resolves to what? A negative times a negative is a positive. Resolves to seen. I want to know what Daniel said at the end of his book and then go back through it and see if I can find why he is saying this while he is writing the first 11 chapters. That is my methodology. In other words, knowing the concluding principles is valuable to locating and focusing on those subcomponents that that affect the resolution. It's math to me. 
I want to know the answer. If I can't figure out the formula, or if I can't figure out the process, at least if I've got the answer, I can work my way backwards. That's how I think. It's odd, I agree. So I'm looking for the conditions or the occurrences that are traceable to the cause. So every time I read the last chapter, I'm going to find out what caused it, what are the conditions that trace me to this particular chapter. And, and besides, I just like knowing the ending. Especially first, irrespective of the value of doing so. Okay, back to Jennifer just a little bit here. Because this also fits in. I have another letter to read in a minute. As you know, I've been reading the clinical trials on atrial fibrillation. Research papers, as many as I can find. I have a whole binder full of them now. And I have a pile on my desk that I go through almost every week. Anything that is relatable, I'll read it. And lately, um, I've been studying the Cabana, the Cabana trial results. There's a huge trial of people with my condition. Which it's essentially a, a comparative effort. It's evaluating the pharmacological approach and the surgical intervention. So it's com- contrasting the two approaches. Or if you wish this, this way, antiarrhythmic drug therapy versus a cryoablation as they relate to uh, atrial fibrillation. And I've had cryoablation. And so what did I do? I have this huge trial. First, I watched all the videos of the seminars of all the doctors that discuss it. And then I read the trial itself, all the pages. And naturally, what did I do? I went to the final page. And I read the conclusion. The results, I want to know the results first. Then I'll go back and look and see whether or not the methodology brings to that result. So I, meet, I read the results and then went back to, find, to locate the findings that supported the conclusions. And the Cabana trial was a 10-year study. You can imagine the scope. Ten years of atrial fibrillation. Thousands of patients. And what I found most interesting was the clinical migration percentage. What does that mean? It's essentially the the clinical migration percentage of the drug therapies, actually. Very few migration occurred. There was some. I should not say there wasn't any. But percentage-wise, there was much more migration from the drug therapy cohort towards the cryoablation cohort. So while the clinical is going on, people in the antiarrhythmic are moving over to the surgery. So that means that during the trial process... A statistically noteworthy number of those given antiarrhythmic drugs fled their collective and opted for the pulmonary vein cryoablation procedure. And that's an example, a wonderful example of free will interfering with mathematics. Because that causes chaos mathematically or statistically. And I found that delightful and quite revelatory. And I wanted to know. Why would there be an abandonment of anticoagulants and antiarrhythmics? I have taken both. I know why there's an abandonment of that. Abandonment. So you have anticoagulants, antiarrhythmics, beta blockers, and calcium blockers. I've had all of those. I'd wish none of that on you. And people that walked away from it, fled it, ran over to ablation surgery. And to be fair, it was not a mass exodus, just enough to throw the entire trial into mathematical uncertainty. 
And nothing warms my heart like free will being exercised and uncertainty being the result. Because I'm back to Heisenberg, right? In fact, I have an article from the media to include on this. So I said I'm going to read it soon, but I'll read it now. Feeding knowledge directly into your brain, just like in science fiction classic The Matrix. I never watched The Matrix. I don't know anything about it, uh, so I'm not an expert. Could soon take as much effort as falling asleep, scientists believe. Researchers claim to have developed a simulator which can feed information directly into a person's brain and teach them new skills in a shorter amount of time, comparing it to life imitating art. They believe it could be the first steps in developing advanced software that will make matrix-style instant learning a reality. Do I think they've actually accomplished this yet? No, it's complete absurdity. But do they want to accomplish it? Yes, they do. What they're actually doing is, is they even say so, it's not unlike what was done in many cultures thousands of years ago. They're electrically stimulating the head. And then they're going, look, we made him smarter. If that really worked, uh, everybody here would use it on their teenage son. I mean, that's just exactly what we would all do. But the point is, is that they think that this is a possibility at some point. They're trying to, you can see this, this, the scientific community trying to make you think that they can eventually incorporate, they can load your entire memory into a device and therefore give you some kind of eternity. That is, of course, a ridiculous concept. Because why? You might load the memories. I'll go ahead and concede the absurdity that you're able to take uh, uh, the favorite niece's memory and put them into a device, a computer. What have you accomplished? You've accomplished nothing. Let's say that I take, I, I make 15 of these automotive devices, automatons. Let's call them androids or robots. I take your memory and I put, put your memory into 15 of these devices. I even make them look like you. What's the obvious question? Which one is you? I've asked this question before in many ways. It's, it's the time issue. I go back in time and find myself 5,000 times and I bring myself to the future and I've got 5,000s of me. Which one is really me? The key to this is I can transfer. Let's go ahead and say I can transfer your memories. I can pretend I've transferred them. I may or may not ever be able to do it. I doubt it. I don't think that man will achieve that. Who is going to do that? That's a reversing of death, isn't it? And, and nothing animates the scientific community uh, than reversing death in any possible way. They recognize this death thing is a real problem. Might be why he did it, huh? But anyway, the point being is, if I don't transfer the will, which is, ends, is not physical it's not particle based the will is a is a spiritual entity if i don't transmit transfer the will i have not transferred the person and so there is no personhood in all of these devices there's just replication that is waiting to be dis, uh, discovered as a fraud 
And all of that fits into Daniel 12. All three letters. So let's go to Daniel 12. Read the last chapter. The whole thing. I'll wait for you to open up and follow ahead. It's on page 1249. Thanks for laughing. At that time, Michael shall stand up. Okay, right off the bat. Here comes the list, right? Michael shall stand up. What's the first question? Why Michael is mentioned here and why does he stand up? Why doesn't he sit down? Heart rate would be better sitting down. The great prince calls him a great prince. Why isn't he a king? He's just a prince. The great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. Who's speaking here? Whoever it is is speaking to Daniel. Who's Daniel's people? The Jews. And there shall be a time of trouble. Does that sound familiar? Such as never was since there was a nation to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Again, who is he talking to? Who's talking? Who is he talking to? And who's the people of the person he's talking to? Those who are wise shall shine like the firmament or, or like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Being really cool to know what that time is. And so he tells you many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So people have pointed out that we traveled by horse for 5,000 years. Oh, my goodness, almost 6,000 years. Now we travel by what? Yeah, well, some of us travel by 2005 Suburban. Not so, that's the word I want. Uh, Ambulatory, how's that? But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on the river bank and the other on that river bank. I'm sorry, one on this river bank and the other on that river bank. And one said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, we have a lot of work to do to figure out who all of these people are. Where do you suppose they're going to be? We're going to learn where they are. That's right. Verses or chapters one through eleven. How long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it shall be for a time, times and half a time when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered. All these things shall be finished. So again, who are the holy people being discussed here? That's right, the people of Daniel. That is the Jews. 
Although I heard, I did not understand. Then he said, then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days, this is a 75-day interval. But you, you go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will arise in your inheritance at the end of the days. Okay, hopefully you picked out the greatly significant pieces. I tried to illustrate them as best I can, but just in case it, uh, you need a little assistance, list makers are going to list time. Notice how many references to time that are in there. At that time, he says, well, we need to know what that time is. And then Michael shows up here. That is amazing. He's the great prince. Handwriting is going to be a little ugly today. And there's this time of Jacob's trouble being discussed. Time of trouble, that's Jacob's trouble. That's never before, such as never since. So, a trouble is coming for Israel. Uh, and there is never any trouble like it. Ever. And your people, Daniel, shall be delivered. And every time you see delivered, well, right off the bat, Satan, Judas, delivered Christ. Didn't betray him. The word is delivered. There's this delivering going on, this theme in Scripture. Very important. And you, we spend some time. And the, then he talks about everyone being written in the book. If you're written in the book, that's good. He brings up Genesis 2-7, doesn't he? The dust. Uh, shall awake. Those that are written in the book that have gone into the dust, their bodies will awaken. Because the bodies are in the dust, right? Ecclesiastes makes it very clear that you are not, your personhood is not in a robot and it is not in a body. It goes back to him. So this is the body that awakes. It's the body that rests. It's the body that is not in service any longer, but will come back, shall awake to everlasting life. Notice that I can bend down here and write. That's pretty amazing. Look at me sit here. But some are going to be Resurrected, some bodies are going to be, the bodies are going to be combined 
everlasting. Contempt. Look at me get up without making noises. I would be proud of myself if this wasn't forced on me. Notice I didn't faint either. It's incredible what being forced to do will accomplish for you. Uh, those who are wise, so I have the wise. Who are those that are wise? They awake to everlasting life. Those who are not wise do not. Those who are wise shall shine. Uh, like the firmament. Well, what do we do now? We go around and find out where we... Well, that's Genesis, isn't it? And those who turn away to uh, turn... And those who turn many. So I have another those. I have the wise and then I have those who turn. The turners, if you will. Like the stars. They'll shine, but they shine like the stars. So then he says, shut up and seal the book. I just will say, shut up. Okay, I'll end. Seal. To the time of the end. We need to know when that time is. And he tells us there's this to and fro. And this is knowledge that increases. So there's your list. I'll stop there. And we'll uh, regroup questions, I hope, are detonating everywhere in your minds. It's exploding, exploding face. <coughs> First one. There is a time that Michael, the archangel, will stand up for Israel. That means he's not standing up for Israel now, right? When is the time that Michael, the great prince of Israel, he's a great prince of Israel, will stand up for Israel? When is that time? Has he done it yet? No, because it has to be the time of what? Jacob's trouble that hasn't happened. And uh, so, when does he do it? Why does he do it? What what time does he do it in? And obviously, Michael is the great prince, the military, one of the military leaders. He's not the leader. That is the commander himself. That is Christ. See Joshua. But he is a, a high-ranking military leader of the angelic host. And he's going to come at some time that's, that's at the end to fight for Israel. And it's the time of Jacob and Israel's trouble. Jeremiah 30, verse 7, the tribulation. So, so far, so good. We've got that. But then, when is the tribulation? What has happened to cause the angelic host to rise up and fight? And, and why do they fight? Who are they fighting? How long have they been fighting? How do they fight? Is this similar to what we saw in Elisha when he shows them in this array of battle formation, if you will? 
Notice that Daniel 12, 1 through 5 is a statement. Somebody is speaking to the prophet Daniel. And you're, what do I do with my pen? No. Who's, who's the speaker here? Daniel is the audience, but who's saying these things to Daniel? It certainly isn't Michael. We can eliminate Michael, but it is someone who knows when and why Michael will stand up for Israel and fight for Israel. So there's an answer alert right there. This is someone who knows who Michael is, knows what Michael's assignments are, and knows when Michael will do what. And he is informing, the speaker is, he's informing Daniel of future events. The speaker knows what time these things will occur. How does he know? And now I should say controversy among the theological community exists as to the identity of the speaker. There's a lot of fighting uh, amongst the theological people. And um, so... um, and that arises, this controversy arises from Daniel 10. Let me put that on the board for the internet. When you go to Daniel 10, you'll find that is the Genesis. So once you identify that I need to know who the speaker is, then you can go back into Daniel and you'll find him uh, at Daniel 10. That's, again, where the controversy is. And feel free to investigate on your phones now while I remain steadfast to my wonderful list where these I was able to accomplish. I'm so proud of K and L. It's amazing. Daniel is being told that Israel currently, at the time of the prophecy, they are in captivity in Babylon. He is being told that they're going to be delivered from the time of trouble that has never happened before, that is worse than anything ever. So first he's told there's going to be this incredibly horrifying time for Jews. And then, and then he said, but you, they will be delivered because Daniel will rise up and fight for them. That means the angelic host is going to fight. Why does the angelic host need to fight? Figure that out. And Israel will be delivered from this time of trouble that has, that has never was since. And everyone who is found written in the Lamb's book of life, Revelation 13, 8, will be delivered. And that would be something especially celebratory for Daniel. Daniel had just seen his entire nation essentially reduced to rubble by Nebuchadnezzar's army. He's in captivity. In captivity, he's been castrated as all of the princes of Israel, so they could not produce a king. And they are hopelessly bound to Babylon. And it looks as if Israel has been ended. But now the speaker tells him, no. Israel will be delivered. Everyone who's in the book will awaken to everlasting life. There will, however, be those who go to everlasting shame and contempt. But Daniel would be celebrating. This is celebration. This is great news. He was incredibly troubled over Israel's survival. And now he knows Israel will be saved and and restored. Why do they need? What caused them to be in this predicament with Nebuchadnezzar? What was the reason that they are captured in captivity? And why will they be restored from it? 
The fact that Michael is involved is of note, obviously. We're going to need to gather all now, all of the accompanying scriptures where Michael is fighting somebody. And certainly that's Revelation 12, 7, or Revelation, yeah, 12, 7 through 12, where Michael is prominent in the casting of Satan to the earth. So I have Michael and Satan. Satan used to have authority over Michael and Michael was deferring to him. There's a significant deference. So they are, they are leading hosts of angels, both of them. And Satan is cast to the earth and Michael is victorious in this, at that particular time. Isn't that interesting? I hope it is because what would be the other way to cast Satan to the earth? Who can go uh, get away and Satan goes away? Why isn't Christ fighting Satan? He doesn't. Michael doesn't. Again, how long have they been fighting? How do they fight? How does this work? It's an extremely complicated thing. So we have Revelation 12, 7 through 12, and we also have Jude 9, where Michael and I believe his army, I said this a few weeks ago, I hope, and Satan, I'm not sure if I've said it to individuals or if I've said it aloud anymore, because why? That's right. I'm old. But I have Michael contending with Satan over the body of Moses. And I said, these are two armies. I believe I can defend that with vigor as well as with logic. I have, I have their armies fighting over the body of Moses. And as you know, that's much to the delight of Val, Joe, and Susie, who have written me now three letters saying, please answer this question. And I'm about to soon be in a relative term. Yeah, sorry. But uh, they are absolutely correct. They're investigating that conflict, and they're wise to do so because it sends us to Daniel 12. So that's sort of an answer. Now all you have to do is go back to Deuteronomy, of course, and, and Daniel 1 through 11. In any event, for today's purposes, notice the relationship between Michael, the archangel, the great prince, and Israel. They are tied together. Michael is tasked to fight for Israel by God himself had to give him that assignment. Why? Why is Michael the one attached to Israel? Eventually, Israel survives the time of trouble, the tribulation, and Michael has a role in Israel's survival here as well. Obviously, there's a great, there's a large volume of work to be done to reconcile Michael's specific responsibilities. Why does he have them? Why are they necessary for him to do what he's doing? Why is the angelic host involved in this at all? Why don't they just be spectators? They're not. They're going to fight. They're going to fight for Israel. Why do they even want to fight? Yeah. They clearly have a role to play. How come? What have they done? What's in their past? What has caused them to be part of this battle? So work that out. Essentially, these are called the whys of Michael. Why has Christ given to Michael and his, the angels he has authority over these assignments, the standing up for Israel and also for the body of Moses? You think it's an accident that Michael shows up and Satan shows up each with an army over the body of Moses? 
that can't be. How is Israel and Moses connected? The body of Moses connected to Israel because Michael ends up fighting for both. And obviously, back to the list here, the dust of the earth at 12.2 is referring to Genesis 2.7 and Ecclesiastes 12.7. And to repeat, Ecclesiastes 12.7 is the reversing of Genesis 2.7 for humanity. For animals, it's 120, 121, 124, and 130. But for humanity, Ecclesiastes 12.7 is the reversing of Genesis 2.7. Daniel 12.2 is the reversing of the reversing. Does that make sense? Let me read it. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. That is the reversing of the reversing. And again, note the everlasting aspect. Life is everlasting, everlasting life, as God defines life. That's his definition of life, not our definition. It's his definitions. But shame and contempt is also everlasting. That is an important doctrinal truth, much to the dismay of those who teach otherwise. The universalists, for example, And it goes on to say, those who are wise shall shine. That clearly, that's 12.3 of Daniel. That clearly builds on Daniel 12.2. The everlasting life shine because they're wise. How did they get to be wise? What made them wise? The wise are those who are written into the Lamb's book of life who will never be blotted out, Revelation 3, 5. So we get from Daniel to Revelation. Bill brought up, does he keep repeating himself a lot in the Bible? Yes, he does. That's because we never, we're just dim-witted. That's our problem. We're thick-skulled. We can't get the message. But my goodness, Revelation, Joel, and Daniel are so connected, it's ridiculous. And I hope you see where Ecclesiastes fits because you see this reversing aspect that is so important in the last chapter of Ecclesiastes. The whole purpose of Ecclesiastes 12 is to make certain that you understand what he knows, what wise Solomon knew, that the reversing of the reversing was going to happen. And why? The wise are those who are written into the Lamb's book of life who will never be blotted out. What do we call that doctrine? Revelation 3, 5. Eternal security. You will find churches, some of you go to churches that do not believe that you will never be blotted out. It's right there. Revelation 3, 5. That is, that is contemptible. To think otherwise, it is an insult, it is disrespectable to God. It's calling him, calling his character into question. It's also horribly unbiblical, but hard to make money with a grace-based system that says never be blotted out. Well, I'm saved and I'm not going to be blotted out. Why should I give you money, weird-looking person with funny devices in his buckets? That's half a joke, but the church today is an economic structure. It is just 
completely corrupted. I've learned that firsthand so many times. I don't even know how to count them. Bill stopped going with me to where we would learn that every once a month. So I don't go anymore because it's your fault. And you were wise not to go. But the point being is, is that that doctrine is, is used as a weapon against the congregations to make them fearful of their salvation. And that is an assuredness that should never be brought into question. Anyway, where was I? Those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life will never be blotted out. Those who reject the promise of Christ at Revelation 3, 5 will be judged. That's Revelation 20, 11 through 15. And their fate is likewise everlasting. I have two eternities. The second eternity is not life. It is called the second death in Revelation 24, 18. And these that are being talked about at Daniel 12, that this information is being given by the speaker, are Jewish. They are the people of, of Daniel. They are the Jews. And those that are wise and shine, see there, in their song, wise and shine and, and wave your hands. Yeah, yeah, got it. Those who are wise and shine like firmament and those who turn away, I'm sorry, and those who turn many to righteousness will shine like stars forever and ever. So I have two there. I have those that are wise and those who turn many to righteousness. So who are the, the, the turners and who are the wise? And again, eternity, the language brings the eternal nature of life. Then, of course, there's the contrast, the second death. Also eternal. Daniel 12, 2 has its complements at Revelation 3, 5 and Revelation 20, 11 through 15 with respect to the eternity of life and death as God defines the terms life and death. It is not physical life being discussed here. It is resurrected life. It is not physical death. It is resurrected death. Hopefully that makes sense. That's being discussed in Daniel 12. Know the difference between physical life and resurrected life and physical death and resurrected death. Know the difference. The speaker concludes with this section, with this instruction to Daniel to shut up the, the words and seal the book until the time of the end. The obvious question is, when is the time of that this book will not be sealed up? Second most obvious question, why shut up? I get said... Please make him shut up, at least every Sunday. So I'm particularly sensitive. Why the sealing of it? Who's it being hidden from? And the third most, most obvious, how did Daniel do it? He has the job of shutting it up. How does he shut it up? I have a copy of it. Seems pretty easy for me. Been around a long time. How did Daniel shut this up? Well, let's see. The time of the end is identified. It's the time which many will race, rush, quickly move back and forth. That's the Hebrew inference there. Many will race, rush, speed. There's a, there's a, it's, it's a time of speed at the end. So, And again, how many is many? I ask that all the time, don't I? How many is many? Well, many is many. There, I answered it. 
Mankind, at the time that this book is unsealed, no longer shut up, at the time that we can understand this book, there will be rapid movement. Mankind will move rapidly, both physically. Also, he will move rapidly in what? What will increase? It says so. Knowledge will increase. And it's not biblical understanding. That's obvious. The church is, is decimated. There isn't very much. I got a letter from somebody, uh, I think, uh, um, gosh, I'm pretty sure, at uh, Ralph Lorraine. He, he, had a, he sent me a, a Bible-based church, their doctrinal statement, and it was fantastic. And, and he said, I'm, you know, you say all the time that the church is a mess. And then, but what do you think of this? And then it was wonderful. He's in New Zealand. Bless his heart. Even though they have their, their issues. Disarming the population, as Bill pointed out in the, in the uh, uh, offertory. Disarming your, 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 your subjects will lead to totalitarianism every time. That's government control of free will. That's an evil act. But mankind will move very quickly, both physically and also in understanding. Again, not biblically understanding, but knowledgeable. They will have technological capabilities, biological understanding, communicational understanding. The overcoming, I believe, of the Tower of Babel impediment. We're, we're, you're watching these, car, these commercials on television where there's one... The computer is translating the Japanese into English as fast as the Japanese can speak it. The, the person going language studies with respect to foreign languages in college is almost completely gone. It'll be gone in another year or two. No one will need to take, be fluent in any language when you have these machines. And your machine will be like your phone or your little pad thingy. I watched the girl going down the street holding it up to her ear the other day. It's hilarious. Mine will be really huge. Why do I need a very big one? I'll need one about this big so I can see it. That's right. And find the numbers. I need the numbers to be like, never mind. This overcoming of the Tower of Babel is in our time. And I think that it has to be accomplished in order to do what? To increase the speed of learning. It fits together with that, as does Noah and Lot, Luke 17, 26 through 28, Genesis 6 and Genesis 13, 13. That's the Noah Lot. That's the wickedness of their time. That's going to come back. So we'll have knowledge. Mankind will have knowledge, all right, but it'll be knowledge of evil. And it'll come really fast. And that is the time that the book of Daniel is unsealed. It needs to be unsealed when that time's coming because never has there been evil like this since. So evil is going to explode. As, as an aside, Satan knows that his time is short, Revelation 12. How does he know his time is short? What, what tells him that his time is short? He got cast out. He read the book, Revelation 12. I'm cast out. I got... Three and a half years. 
Obviously, God intended for the book of Daniel to be understood, to be opened at the end of the age of the Gentiles and not before. It must involve Satan's intentions. Keep in mind, Daniel 12 is primarily a reference and is referring to the nation of Israel, the Jews. That is what it is saying to us. Some to everlasting life, some to everlasting shame is a statement from the speaker directed to tribulational Jews, the Israelites. I've got to go fast. I agree that it encompasses Gentile nations as well. But the speaker tells Daniel that Jews will be divided, will be divided into two groups, some into contempt, some to everlasting life. And that, that's going to happen in the tribulation. Some to deliverance, some to shame. What's, on what basis are they, are they separated? Daniel 9.27, the Antichrist will confirm a covenant with many Israelites for a seven, it says. And that's the beginning of the abomination that is spoken about in Daniel 12. The, the abomination that makes desolate. The desecration of the third Jewish temple. The temple that is a tribulational temple. Hasn't been built yet, has it? What's in its spot? A mosque. The foundation is there. But there will be a temple there. And the abomination is the worship of the Antichrist in that temple. Who's worshiping him in Jerusalem in that temple? Who's doing it? Jews are doing it. The Jewish religious leadership of the nation. Matthew 24, 15 through 16. Jesus Christ, God himself in the flesh says, when you see the abomination of desolation, run. He's saying that to the Jews. Flee to the mountains. Don't have time to read it. He's telling the Jews to flee. When you see the you and that, when you see the you in that sentence are those Jews who see the abomination of desolation. They see the Antichrist and they reject him and his covenant. He says to those, flee, run now, don't wait, go fast. And therefore the fir- we first see this two groups, the first two groups we see of Israelites. The many of Daniel 9.27 who accept the Antichrist, the apostates, if you will, the apostates. Those who connect, who trace back to the Pharisees who align to Satan Judas. Satan Judas here, Satan Judas there. Satan man, if you will. So we have those who accept the Satan man and we have those who flee from him. So that's two groups right off the bat. There's also the 144,000 Jews who are commissioned, sealed in Revelation 7, sealed on their foreheads. These are the children of Israel, Revelation 7, 4, who are promised protection. And this is amazing because it is the fulfillment at long last of Israel's original directive. Why were they in captivity? Because they refused to do something that God told them to do. They were to take the truth of the one true God of creation to all of the earth, to the Gentiles. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, said no. They hated that directive. They loathed and refused, as did previous Israelite religious orders. Jonah was, is a great example of them. He's a type of the Pharisees, the Pharisaical uh, uh, barrier, if you will. Jonah asked for God to kill the Assyrians. God said, no, I'm going to save the Assyrians. Jonah then was a type of the nation of apostate Israel. 
He's that way at Jonah 1.3. He's that way at Jonah 4.1-11. He hated the Assyrians, the Gentiles. He wasn't going to tell them the truth. He, he didn't want them saved. But at Jonah 2, Jonah is a type of Christ. And keep in mind, Jonah, the Holy Spirit, and Jonah wrote Jonah about Jonah being a what? A mess. I want you to write your book about yourself. Make sure you describe how what an idiot you are. That's your Bible. That is a... Jonah wrote about his failure and his refusal to obey God, his hatred for the Assyrians. The book of Jonah is a confession of sinfulness, but it's also an example of a contrite man. Anyway, the 144,000 Jews go joyfully, lovingly, willingly into the Gentile nations. And finally, now Israel complies. It discharges their assignment, their original purpose. That's what the 144,000 are. Much to the dismay of the Jehovah's Witnesses who think they're the 144,000. Sorry if I've offended you. Not really. Fake sorry. Those are Jews. And there are, so now you've got three distinct Jewish entities, right? The apostates, the runners, and the 144,000. And then there's a fourth, and that's those who believe the truths of Christ. Who did they hear it from? The 144,000 and the two witnesses. And these are the defenders of Jerusalem. What do they do? They fight. Who's coming for them? The Antichrist. One of the first things Arnold G. Fruchtenbaum said to me is, I want to be in that group. I want to go to Israel. I want to fight. I don't want to be raptured. I want to go to Jerusalem. I want to fight the Antichrist. Now he knew what was going to happen to him if he did. Because the Antichrist prevails and slaughters them. Executes them. But they, these, the ones who believe the witnesses and the 144,000 who go all over the world finally doing what the Jewish nation is supposed to do, uh, they're martyred. They'll fight the army of the Antichrist at the siege of Jerusalem, the destruction of the holy city, and the battle of Armageddon. That is Zechariah 12:49. The feeble among them at that time will be as David, and the house of David shall be as God, as the angel of Jehovah. In other words, these old men will fight like young, mighty warriors. And they will fight with great fury against the Antichrist. Excuse me. <coughs> Nevertheless, Jerusalem will fall, and they will be massacred. Guess who else fights at the same time? That's right, the Assyrians. They come down and fight for Israel. And they're going to destroy the city of the Antichrist. Who converted them? 144,000 and the two witnesses. Now some think that they're mixed Jews, and I don't disagree with that, so they'll give you five of them, but most say four. Apostate, parasitical Jews who worship the Antichrist, who, who worship the Satan man, who accept the covenant. But the faithful remnant who do not, and they flee to the mountains, and they've yet to accept Christ, Joel 2.32. Finally, Christ says to them, whoever calls on my name will be saved, and they become saved. They're the last Jews to be saved. And the feeble who fight like David, the believing Jews. So those four groups, and add the Assyrians. Finally, who's the speaker? I would read Daniel 10, but I'm way over. Daniel 10, 4 through 9. You can do that as a homework assignment and figure it out. It's either Christ or it's Gabriel. Or it's Christ and Gabriel. Christ or Gabriel. 
Many shall be purified, made white, and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise will understand. What specifically will the wicked not understand that only the wise will understand? I, I kind of answered that. Yea, an answer. Daniel did not understand it. Verse 8, right? Daniel asked, My Lord, what shall be the end of these things? What are these things? And that's the whole book of Daniel. He didn't understand a thing in his book. So the unsealing of the entire book of Daniel had, has to come. We've seen some of that with Revelation. Uh, from the, John's book of Revelation. We see an unsealing beginning to happen, but it still has not happened. There's more here. If we unseal it, what's that mean? Good news for us. Bad news for us. Anyway, Revelation 22, 10 through 11 says, John was not to seal his book. Daniel, you seal yours, not you, John. Make sure you don't seal yours. Why? John repeats. Daniel says the wicked shall do wickedly. John says the unjust, the filthy, shall be unjust still. Filthy still. Christ linked Daniel and John, his beloved. Why did he do that? Anyway, John got to figure out. I didn't cover this one little thing. Let me give you this one little tiny thing on uh, Lucas's letter so that he's happy. And we'll shut it down. I know it's long, but I've been off. You had last week off. John 13, 18 through 21. He that eats the bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. That's what Christ says. Genesis 3, 15, Psalm 41, 9. Luke, Lucas. Now I tell you, before it comes, that when it does come to pass, that you will, may believe, I am. Genesis 3, 14. I am that I am. What is it, the it that has to come? He's about to give the sop to who? As soon as he gives it to Judas, what happens to Judas? Satan man. So we give him the sop, and then he becomes Satan man. And John, who's laying on him, who's not supposed to seal up his book, John 3, 25, 27, he whispers to him, I believe, and says, who is it? He's figured out that the it is a who. Sounds like Dr. Seuss there, right? The sop is given to somebody at these special banquets. Christ is the head of the banquet and he has the sop. And the sop is given to the one that he loves the most. His friend, the beloved, the honored. That's Judas. Satan man. Right after. So... That explains the farewell kiss from Judas at Gethsemane. Next week, try to clean all of that, all those many parts up.